The Bible reading that I'm going to read is uh, Revelations. It's uh, chapter 7, verses 9 to 12, and you'll find that on 1241 in the, in the uh, Pew Bibles if you um, haven't, already, haven't already found that. So John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in loud voices, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, the second reading is from the Old Testament, from 1 Chronicles, chapter 17. And if you're following it in your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 415. So 1 Chronicles 17, starting at verse 1. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. But that night, the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another, Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, my God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You, Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. What more can David say to you for honouring your servant? For you know your servant, Lord. For the sake of your servant and according to your will, You have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. There is no one like you, Lord, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself and to make a name for for yourself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You made your people Israel 
your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promised, so that it will be established and that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty, the God over Israel, is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. So your servant has found courage to pray to you. You, Lord, are God. You have promised these good things to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Lord, have blessed it, and it will be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to St. Stephen's. My name's Prash. Uh, if I haven't met you before, I look forward to over brunch later. Uh, it's good to have you back. Some of you are back after the break, and so it's good to, to see you at church this morning. Today, uh, ah, it's, it's the 4th of February, it's the second month of the year, but in just the rhythm of church life, uh, it's often the case, I think, that this is kind of when we really click back into gear, all of our, our pretensions to holidaying have well and truly passed, and so we do try and take this moment, this Sunday, just to um, reset our course for the year, remind ourselves as a church uh, what we think God is calling us to do here in this part of Sydney, uh, and then next week we launch back into our series in Matthew and we'll spend some time uh, looking at the life of Jesus. But today we call Vision Sunday to give us a clarity about what we think God is asking us to do here. Let me pray for us and then let's, let's embark on that for a little. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we pray that your Holy Spirit would apply to our hearts and minds this morning and make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, well, uh, there, was a, um, a, there was a reality show on TV uh, last year called Rush. It's like The Amazing Race or whatever. I mean, you, you, there's so many you may not have even seen it. But the, pre the, the way the show ran was they put a headphones, noise-cancelling headphones, and um, complete like light-blocking uh, uh, lenses on people, uh, blindfolds on people, and then they dropped them in like a random part of the world. They had no idea what it was, and then of course, they must have got some kind of cue through the headphones. You can take them off, they all remove them, they find themselves in a place, and the task is for them and their team to make it to the next pit stop. Okay. And I think it might have been episode one or two. Uh, one team got dropped in the middle of the desert in Jordan. Then they must have had something because it obviously would have been hot. But anyway, they take their headphones off, they take the blindfold off, and there they are. And it's a race. This is just one of a number of teams dropped in the desert, and their job is to get to a new location. The team, eager, eager to beat everyone there, grabs their map out of their backpack and charges off. Now, the producers must have loved this because the rest of the episode, they slowly revealed that the team had failed to turn the map the right way 
and so had spent the remaining three hours of the show going in the wrong direction. If they'd only taken their compass out, isn't it? It reminds us, actually, of just that, that, that kind of insight that, you know, if you get something wrong, even in a small way early on, and then go down that journey for a long period of time, the difference is dramatic, isn't it, after a period of time. So how we start matters. How we start the year matters as well. And it, it's important, even in the Christian life, it's not enough just to be eager. It's not enough just to be eager and to jump into it. I think we've all had this experience, even with like the, the um, New Year's resolution about some part of our Christian life. The eagerness of it is not sufficient. And we see that, actually, in the um, account that was read. There were two passages, two sections of the Bible read. Um, the Revelation passage, which is from the end of the Bible, we'll come back to it in a moment, but then there was the passage from 1 Corinthians 17, the 1 Chronicles 17, sorry, in the Old Testament. The chronicler spends a lot of his time talking about the kingdom of Israel, and particularly the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon, like the high point. This is what, the, you know, this is what it's meant to look like in his eyes. And as he writes about David, when we turn to chapter 17, David's kingdom has been established at this point in time. The great palace, his great palace has been built. Jerusalem, the city of David, has been established. Um, the, the nations have been driven out of Canaan and the promised land has been occupied as promised by God. David looks around and sees, you know, he's got this opulent kingdom, the city is thriving, and yet the Ark of the Covenant, which is this kind of religious relic at the centre of Israel's religious life, remains in a tent. And so David, filled with a vision for, um, for kind of honouring God, says to Nathan, the prophet, I want to build a temple. I want to build a temple. This is ridiculous. I'm in a great palace, but the Ark is in a tent. That's the bit you would have read at the start. And Nathan says to him, very quickly, whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. Verse 2, whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. But that night, Nathan is rebuked. And God says to Nathan, and so therefore to David, you are not to build me a house to dwell in. It's really interesting because if you pause it at verse 2, you think David is doing the right thing. This is, a, this is his eager to honour the Lord, and so he, he embarks on this course. But very quickly, God knowing that if you embark on the course for the slightly off target, even at the start, it'll go down the wrong way, he quickly corrects the path. He says, you're not to build me a house to dwell in. Now, I mean, eventually they do build a temple for God. It's, a, it's an extraordinary building, but it's Solomon who will build it. And at this point in the, in the account, there's a, there's a caution here for us. David has a vision, but it's not God's vision. And uh, that's, that's an important thing to realize because actually that means that God might have something to say about a vision Sunday. <laughs> the Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German theologian, he wrote a great little book on Christian community. He starts very early and says, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. There's a warning for Vision Sunday. <laughs> be wary of Vision Sundays, I'd say. Be wary of kind of rushing down the task of creating a vision for church and pursuing it single-mindedly. Because you, it may not be God's vision. It's something that I've, I think, maybe early on when we, when we created our vision 
vision sentence or vision description, we have this quote again because it's a reminder we have to have in mind. So how do we ensure that we go down the right path? How do we ensure that we stay on track, so to speak? I think the, the events of David here are quite helpful for us. There's two things, in fact, that kind of get them back on track, keep them going in God's vision, so to speak. And the first is the word of the Lord, because Nathan is told, we're told in verse 4, this is what the word of the Lord says. The word of God comes to Nathan to correct his misunderstanding. Now, in, in, Nathan's, in, in David, Nathan's time, that was often a vision or appearance to a prophet like Nathan who then passed it on to David. Nathan's like the spiritual advisor to the king in David's time. And so he passes it on to us. The word of the Lord is primarily found in the Scriptures, in the Bible, because it's there where God has given us his promises. He's given us a sense of his path and his purposes, his plan, his way of doing things. And so actually, the Bible is a very crucial tool for us in ensuring that we embark on the right, the right path. It's like the map. The Bible is the thing that ensures the map's not upside down, that we're not going to head in the wrong direction. The Word of the Lord. And that's why, actually, we had the, the, um, the passage from Revelation 7 read for us. Because Revelation 7 is a, um, is a picture the whole book of Revelations is actually kind of God's way of painting a picture for the church through the Apostle John of where we're going. It's a picture of where things are going to end up, what he's working towards. It's not an unusual picture. Actually, once you take it in the context of the story of the Bible, you can see, oh, yes, it's, we've always been going there. But Revelations is this picture. And in Revelation 7, we get this great picture of this great gathering. Here it is, verse 9. There before me was a great multitude, says John, that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And for us as a church, I think it's my conviction that this is a picture of where we're going. This is the great church where all the small churches throughout time and in location ultimately find their resting place. This is it, this great gathering. And we're in a sense on, we're stepping stones towards this. And so, you know, a number of years ago now, this is what we came up with to kind of summarize our purpose, why we're here. We long to be a church made beautiful, diverse and large by the gracious work of Christ. It's an attempt to... Uh, to capture what John is portraying to us in Revelations, to say we want to be on a path towards what God is doing. Now the thing about, about visions, in a sense, a vision statement or a purpose statement or a goal is you set it, but then you constantly have to find yourself not being distracted by other things. Perhaps the value of something like this, it keeps putting it before us, this is what God's doing, and so this is what we're about. This is what we want to be focused on. And so if you go back to it, I want to remind us of some things. Maybe you're new, maybe you've joined us in the last few months, maybe you're a regular, but I think it's helpful for both of us, both groups. Uh, John says, there before me was a great multitude. See, John, when he is given a glimpse of the church in its kind of final, complete thing, he sees a great multitude that no one could count. We know that God can count every hair on his head, but in this count, the number is so great. Now, it's easy sometimes, I think, to be fearful 
to be distracted by fear. We live in a, a society that says Christianity is dying. It's something that was and is no longer. But God presents us with a picture of a church that's constantly growing. That's a, it's, it's not just here, of course. I mean, we see this throughout. We see that the gospel, when it goes out, results in fruit. Jesus tells us parables of when the word is preached, it results in a great harvest. For some, it's 30, some 60, some 100. There's an expectation in the New Testament church of growth, that when the gospel encounters new places, it, it, it results in fruit, it results in growth, it's, it results in numerical growth. And here's the final picture. We have to be aware of the distraction of fear. John goes on and says, in this multitude were people from every tribe, every nation, every people group, and every language. He's very deliberate here. He says, this is a group that has a genuine ethnic and cultural diversity about it. You might be someone who's grown up thinking about Christianity, particularly if you've lived in this part of Sydney, as something that's really the domain of white old people. But the Bible doesn't have that vision for God's church. That is not what God's about. He, it's, and this is not, again, just John who's presenting this. This is the end picture, but for which the whole Bible is about. Abraham is meant to be the father of nations, not one nation. Israel, though it is the object of God's blessing in the Old Testament, is ultimately the, perp, the means through which God will bless all the nations. The promises in Isaiah are not just a promise for a nation, but ultimately all the nations to come to God's mountain. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus commissions his disciples, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It is a vision of God's church from every tribe, nation, and language. And you might think to yourself, oh, that it's a church just for people like me. Or worse still, it's a church for not people like me. But the Bible promises us God is building a church of people from every tribe and culture and nation. And he says, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, were these people who were wearing white robes. It's an image that's pregnant with meaning. These robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, we're told in Revelation. These are white because they're meant to represent people who have had all of their sin, all of their guilt, all of their shame, all of their mistakes washed away. So when they stand before Jesus on the last day, they are like Jesus. Again, it's tempting to be distracted, to think that this group of people and the people you meet with at church are primarily like a social club. But I, I keep saying this. The church and every other group of people are in two different categories. There's the church and there's every other group. It doesn't mean those groups are necessarily bad. I mean... Probus is good, mother's clubs are good, those things are all great. Right? But they are not church. They function for a different purpose. Church functions, the people of God function, to make us more like Jesus. To clothe us ultimately in the robes of righteousness that Jesus purchased for us. That's, that's, the, that's the focus. And so the church is here to make us more like Christ. And that's, that's what our vision statement is about. We long to be a church made beautiful. That is people like Jesus. Christ-like, who live and love like Jesus. Diverse, that is a church that represents ethnic, cultural and generational diversity. This picture that, of what God is doing. We just, want to, we just want to follow the path of that. We want to be on track with that. 
And large, we want to be a church that's growing. We want to see people come to know the Lord Jesus. We want to see not just our church, of course, we want to see churches in the area grow. This is our vision. Someone said to me this week, what's your vision for this year? I said to them, well, it's kind of like more of the same. More of the same. We don't change track because this is it. This is, this is where we're going. Whether we like it or not, actually, this is where we're going. So we might as well just stick to the plan and keep going. Now, if you're new, I hope this is not all completely new to you, and if you've been to a church before, then I hope hopefully they're kind of on the same track too. If you've never been to a church before, it might be very new to you. Take a moment. Take it in. This is what St. Stephen's is about. This is what we're about. If you're not you're going to be disappointed with us. But I don't apologise for it. Because I have a deep conviction that this is something shaped by the Word of God and His promises to us. I have a conviction that the Bible has turned the map the right way for us and given us the compass and shown us what God is about and we're doing our best to take steps in that direction. And so we commit wholeheartedly to this again with joy and confidence. That's the first thing that keeps us on track, is the Word of God. But there's something else that's very interesting in this. This is the starting point of the temple being built. Because as I said to you, it eventually will be built, not by David, but by his son Solomon. But it's kind of the, the first significant moment that a temple is discussed in the Old Testament. And what's really interesting is what takes place here. So Nathan says to David from God, you're not going to build a temple. Someone else is going to do it. And so what does David do? We're told in verse 16 that we just, you wouldn't have, you maybe didn't notice, but we skipped from verse 6 to verse 16. We skipped a little bit. And we got to this bit. And we're told then king, I should say king, he's kind, but he's king. Uh, king David of Israel went in and sat before the Lord. This was prayer. David prays. Now, what's very significant for me here is this is, a very, this is a repeating pattern in the Bible. When big moments happen, when things start, they start with God's people praying. God's people praying. It's true in, even in the Genesis account. If you go back, those of us who were here and did Genesis last year, you look at these key moments, they often start with you know, calling on the name of the Lord, which is like a shorthand for praying. God's people pray and things happen. Here it is. The temple plans are booked before the Lord. David prays. That's how he prepares for it. David prays and goes through. Every time there's a moment, there's significant moments, they're often preceded by God's people praying. Jesus, in the New Testament, before he starts his ministry, goes into the wilderness, time of prayer. When he does significant things, like appoint apostles, uh, disciples, he prays. Before he goes to the cross, he prays. When the disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit and therefore their commission to do Jesus' work, they are in the upper room praying. We start by praying. We start by praying. And it, what's really interesting about this is the way that the Chronicle describes prayer here. I love the image. He sat before the Lord. What I'm talking about is not kind of rote prayer that you're just doing out of obligation, that kind of dry, lifeless thing that you've just done or you just do because you have a sense of, of burden and duty. 
This is an intimate experience with God. That's what prayer looks like here. It is David before the Lord. Before the Lord. And so for us, if the word of God is important, prayer is also important. Now, we have four mission characteristics we say to ourselves. If we're going to be a church that's going to be healthy, one of the things we need to do, and in fact the first thing we need to do is be praying big prayers shaped by the gospel. That's our starting point. There's other things, but this is it. This is where it all starts. We need to be people who are praying. And so the first step for us, if we've got the map there and we think we want to go where God's going, the first step is prayer. There's two things I, I want to put before you, if that's the case. First thing is our quarterly prayer meetings. We hold them every quarter. Our first one is this week, and it's in the form of a week of prayer. I want every person at St. Stephen's to come to the week of prayer. Every person. So we're running it every night. 7.30 to 8.30, Monday to Friday. I can't be there on Thursday. I have another appointment, which can't cancelled. So Gordon's coming. It's his day off. But he believes in it, so he'll be there on Thursday night. Come to one of them. Come to all of them. That'd be even better. But come to one of them. I want everyone to come. You are not too busy to come to the week of prayer. There is nothing more important than to come to the week of prayer and pray this week. There are enough opportunities. It's one hour. But praying is how great things start. We need to pray. We need to pray. That's why um, those weeknight gospel and prayer groups are not meeting this week, because they're coming to pray. They're coming to be with other people outside of their groups and pray. It'll just be in the chapel hall. It's, as I said, it's one hour. I'll be there um, every day except Thursday night. Uh, I'll lead you through it. If you've never prayed before, you can just sit and listen to other people pray. One of the joys, actually, of praying with uh, other Christians is sometimes in your own prayer life, you don't feel that intimacy of sitting before the Lord. But then you sit with someone else who, at that season, the Holy Spirit has given them a rich prayer life and their prayer life stirs you. You sense as you listen to them praying, oh, we're sitting before the Lord. It's the joy of praying in community, actually, and not just by yourself. So come, pray. The second thing is our gospel and prayer groups. If you hadn't picked up by the theme of the service, that's a bit of a focus for us uh, today. But it's because we really think this is a crucial part of the life of our church. Okay, you can come to church every Sunday, you can hear a sermon, you can have a cup of coffee, uh, you can listen to the prayers. I don't think that will be transformative in your life. Don't think it will. I tell you what I have seen through regular experience of people's testimony. When you commit, not just to doing that, but to meeting with a smaller group of people regularly through the week to read the Bible and pray with them, that is transformative to you spiritually. Maybe it's partly transformative because you have to make a decision to subsume your, your desires and needs to someone else's and another group's needs and desires Maybe it's the repetition of hearing the word a, regular, a couple of times through the week with people. Maybe it's the opportunity to sit with other people and pray because most of the prayers we encounter on a Sunday are one person praying in a big group. If you're like me, your thoughts wander to, oh, there's a cobweb or that fan's not working or that light needs to be replaced. 
Sometimes you just need that intimacy to, to remind you of the privilege of what's happening. I don't know, it could be one of those, it could be many. Join a gap group this year. Many of you are, many of you have joined, some of you turn up. I would love to see all of us in a gap group and many of us attend each week. That would be a great outcome. Uh, the, the leaders and I have talked about this with Glenn, who oversees the morning groups. Uh, we've talked about the fact that we, we have roughly 70% of people in a group, but only about 45 to 50% of them actually come. You've got to commit to these groups. They've got to be worthwhile. But if we really believe that great things start with prayer, right, shaped by the Word of God, then these are great groups for you, but they're also great groups for us as a church at St. Stephen's. I, I want you to, to actually really commit to this. In your Connect card today, there's a box for Gap Groups. Tick the box and then follow through with it. We'll have a conversation. That'll happen. I'll reach out to you. I'll give you a, a few groups that are meeting uh, which might work for you in, your, you know, in terms of your location, season of life, etc. And uh, go to that group. Join it. Be, richly in, you know, be enriched by it and enrich them. Join a gap group. These things are good. They're good. And they're good not just because, oh, they keep the church kind of going on the same direction. They're good because of the God who's at the centre of them. As we finish, I just want you to look at the prayer again that David prays and ask yourself, what is unexpected about David's prayer? Remembering what's happened. David had a vision. God shut it down. So David goes and prays. I don't know how you would pray. Here's how my prayer would go. Oh, Lord, why? But David doesn't pray that. He doesn't pray that at all. He actually prays this. Oh, Lord, you, Lord, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. What more can David say to you for honouring your servant? For you know your servant, Lord. Something about sitting before the Lord that is both invigorating and, for want of a better word, humiliating. It's lowering. The Lord knows you. That's a pretty big thing for David to say because he's got some skeletons in the closet there, but the Lord knows them, and yet he's exalted him. And that, my friends, is the grace of the gospel, that you're known and loved in spite of being known by the Lord. That's the grace of the gospel. And that's who God is, and that's who he's praying. And when we're invited into these spaces, we don't have to come bitter or fearful before God. When you come to your gap, I love what Harriet said, you can just come rolling, she never rolls out of bed, <laughs> she's got a daughter to drop at school, but uh, she does send her to school, by the way, if you're worried. Uh, <laughs> but you can, you can come with all your stuff, because the Lord already knows you. And in Christ, he has exalted you. It's the gospel. And that's what it means to come before him in prayer, to sit alongside your brothers and sisters and pray with them, to be in a weekly group with them, is to experience the grace of God. That's what David's experiencing. We might think God saying no to something of his is, is a punishment, but David doesn't experience it like that. He experiences it as a, as a moment of deep grace and graciousness by God. 
And, and also, he has such confidence, because look how he finishes. It says, now, Lord, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promise. He's so confident in God. Even though God might have said no to this thing, he is still confident in God's promises. And so you can be too. Just as I finish, I just want to share something with you. I pray, I try to, try to read the Bible and pray every morning. Um, Sometimes I do it out of a sense of duty. <laughs> I can't tell you if I don't do it. But a lot of the times I do it out of a sense of joy and relief. And I, I write down my prayers in a, in a journal. So I went back uh, a couple of days ago and went through my journal for last year, reflected on what I would prayed for for us as a church. And I just wanted to share with you my reflections on how God has responded to those. Okay. So first of all, here's some things which I prayed for which God said no to. I prayed that five non-Christians would come to faith last year. I prayed that HPS youth ministry would grow. I prayed for revival in our neighbourhood. I prayed that God might sort out the financing for our redevelopment, and I prayed that he might bring back those who have drifted away. God said no, or not yet, to all of those. Now, you might be thinking, wait, this is a vision sermon. Why are you telling us about the things God didn't answer? But you kind of have to talk about those because that's, that's part of praying to God. It's being open to him saying no to you. That's actually what crushes the visionary dreamer tendency in us and establishes us someone who's subject to, people who are subject to the vision of God. Right? You've got to be open to him saying no. You've got to be open to saying not yet or just Wait. But I also really want to share this with you because I went through it and I, I couldn't capture everything. But here, here is some of the things that God answered in my prayers for us last year. I prayed that he'd raise up new leaders for gap groups and parish council and answered that. I prayed that he'd establish and grow the new night church congregation. He answered that. I prayed that he'd provide us with boldness and wisdom and unity for the redevelopment site especially early in the year. He answered that. I pray that more, there'd be more people at our quarterly prayer meetings. He answered that. I pray that he'd bring two new families to our mornings at this service. He absolutely answered that. I pray he'd provide the financial resources to run the ministry. He answered that. I pray he'd establish and grow Friday Kids. He did that. I pray that he'd make us a church that is more culturally diverse. He's answering that. I pray he'd give us a growing desperation to reach the spiritually lost. He's doing that. I pray that he'd sustain those who were sick or dying and their families last year, and he did that in a number of very powerful moments last year. I pray that he'd sustain the staff during periods of discouragement. He did that. I pray he'd provide a solution to our administration needs. He did that. I pray he'd work to change someone stuck in sin. He did that. I pray he'd reach, help us read lots of people through Christmas and outreach. He did that. I pray he'd make that first night church weekend away encouraging and viable. He did that. I prayed he'd bring many guests to the conversations about Hope event. He did that. I prayed he'd bring, give the staff team unity and joy in serving together. He's done that. I prayed he'd give sustenance for big weeks of ministry. He's done that. I prayed for generosity, for mission, gift day. He did that. I prayed for wisdom in many challenging meetings and conversations through the year. And he did that. I prayed that he'd find a replacement for Micah and Sam. And he's done that. Now, this list is just a glimpse, honestly, it's just a glimpse. And it doesn't reveal the other things that are on my heart for our family or for my, for my friends, for the neighbourhood that I, I haven't even listed. 
God has been very kind. But it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us. Because here's the thing about, about prayer to the God of the Bible. We do it because he, he has already promised to give us more than we can ask or imagine. You know what is really striking about David's prayer? God says, I want to build you a temple. <laughs> Sorry, David says to God, I want to build you a temple. God says, no, I'm going to build you a house instead. You want to do something for me? No, no, no. I'm here to do something for you. That's who God is. So my friends, this week, come, let us pray. And may God do as he's promised. Let me pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church and your commitment to it, which overwhelms any commitment we have. Thank you for drawing us into it and by the gracious work of the Lord Jesus, working to make us more like him. We pray, Heavenly Father, that again this year you would do what you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen.